Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Tuesday, uh, January 2nd, uh, 2024, and uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the case filed against the State of Israel by the Republic of South Africa charging genocide. Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed says he is looking forward to being an official member of the Brazil-Russia-India-China-South Africa Plus Summit. Angola is unveiling its budget uh, for this year, 2024. And in Chad, a former opposition leader uh, has been appointed prime minister. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on Palestine with examinations of the recent targeted assassination of a Hamas leader in Lebanon and the South African legal claim against Tel Aviv at the International Court of Justice. We then review uh, the impact of the siege on Gaza and mobilizing youth internationally. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude in the Democratic Republic of Congo with the legendary Shala Moana. Let's listen in. Come away, come away. 
I'm not 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of Shala Moana from the Democratic Republic of Congo, classic uh, Pan-African music. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Tuesday, January 2nd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines. In today's Pan-African Newswire, Israel decided to appear at the United Nations International Court of Justice in Hague, the Netherlands, in the hearing of a case filed by South Africa alleging genocidal acts in Gaza. Israeli news website Ynet reported uh, last evening. It says that Israel has signed the Convention Against Genocide for decades, and we will certainly not boycott the proceedings but stand up and repel the absurd blood plot against us, Israeli National Security Advisor Shazi Hanegbi told the website. According to the report, the decision was preceded by intensive discussions in Israel by senior officials led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The case filed on Friday claims alleged violations by Israel of this obligation under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the crime of genocide concerning Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, according to the International Court of Justice. South Africa urged the UN court to take provisional measures to protect against further severe and irreparable harm to the rights of the Palestinian people under uh, the Geneva Convention. In other news, the Horn of uh, Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia The government uh, yesterday expressed its readiness to play a constructive role in the BRICS mechanisms as its BRICS membership officially took effect on the same day. That was January the 1st, 2024. In a press statement uh, yesterday, the Ethiopian Ministry of Foreign Affairs said its membership in the BRICS family has shown the East African country's commitment to the South-South cooperation framework. The membership also recognizes its rich multilateral contribution to promoting international peace, security, and prosperity, as well as its continued commitment uh, to and leadership in the South-South cooperation, the ministry said. It said the historic decision to invite Ethiopia to join the BRICS mechanism acknowledged the current status and potential of uh, the Ethiopian economy, which is undergoing reforms. Guided uh, by its long-held principles and rich history of multilateralism, Ethiopia remains committed and ready to play a constructive role in promoting peace and prosperity as a new member of the BRICS family in collaboration with all its promoting peace and prosperity and as a new member of BRICS family in collaboration with all its members, it said. The ministry said a national ministerial committee and a senior official coordination committee had been established to ensure Ethiopia's active participation in the bloc. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In Angola, the general uh, state budget of Angola for 2024, valued at 24.7 trillion Kwanzas, about 2.8 billion U.S. dollars, came into effect uh, starting yesterday, January 1st, and will be implemented uh, from uh, today, uh, January 2nd. Angola's national budget for this year is 22.94% larger than that of 2023. 
Angola Press Agency, the official news agency of the country, has reported, according to the budget, Angola uh, will have an inflation rate of 15.3% and a real growth of 2.84% in the gross domestic product this year. The budget was approved by the National Assembly on December 13, 2023, with revenues estimated based on average oil barrel prices of 65 U.S. dollars and an average daily production of 1.06 million barrels. Finally, Chadian Transitional President Mahatma Idris Dibe Etno on Monday appointed former opposition leader Success Masra as Prime Minister. Masra, who had been longtime rival of the Dibe government, fled the country in 2022 amid a political clampdown but returned in November last year. Following mediation by the President of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Felix Chesakede, last month, Mastra, who is the President of the Transformers Political Party, supported the transitional president during a referendum for a new constitution. Local media reported that his appointment could usher in a new phase of reconciliation and peace in the Central African country which has faced a socio-political crisis since 2021 following the death of former President Idris Dibe Etno. Mohamed Idris Dibe Etno, his son, has since led a transitional military council uh, which governs the country. That, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding uh, this segment of our program, We'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan- Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast, go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Tuesday, January 2nd, uh, 2024. That was uh, the sound of the group uh, 100 Proof, uh, Aged and Soul, uh, with the track entitled Too Many Cooks. And, uh, of course, uh, news uh, broke uh, earlier today about the targeted assassination of a Hamas leader. We're going to uh, move into a report on these developments uh, which occurred in Lebanon. So if you're just joining us here, we're going to recap our breaking news coming out of Lebanon, where an Israeli drone has assassinated Saleh El-Aruri, a senior official from Hamas. At least four people died in the strike, which took place in the southern part of Lebanon's capital, Beirut. The office was located in the suburb of Dahiya. Ali Hashim is live for us now in Nakura in southern Lebanon. So, Ali, what more are you hearing and, and how significant is this development? Well, Hazim, um, as you said, this um, assassination of uh, Saleh al-Aruri, the deputy politburo of Hamas, along with uh, three of his uh, assistants in uh, an explosion. Till the moment, we don't have any confirmation whether this was a drone attack, whether this was uh, an explosion, a bomb planted in the office or a warplane. Till the moment, there are no clear uh, uh, there is no t- clear picture on uh, how this was conducted, though there are many that are saying it's likely a drone attack. And if it's a drone attack, then this is the first time since 2006 in Beirut. Uh, the other thing is that Saleh al-Aruri's significance within Hamas. He's, he's the, the liaison between the uh, military wing and the political uh, bureau. He is the man who is known to be one of the founders of the military wing of Al-Qassam brigades. He was uh, in Israeli prisons for 15 years, since the 90s and till 2010 when he was released. Then he left to Syria and from Syria to Turkey and from Turkey back came to Lebanon where he was assassinated today. The significance of this assassination is that it puts or it stresses the fact that this whole war that started on the 7th of October 2023 is a multi-layered war, a war that's already being raged on, 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 on uh, Gaza, people being killed in Gaza at the same time. It's a security war and m- multiple uh, fronts. One of them is Lebanon. And actually, this puts the assassination of Saleh al-Aruri into also another dimension. There is the Hamas dimension and there is the Lebanon dimension and there is the Hezbollah dimension, especially with the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, vowing in, 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 in the past months and, and years that any um, Israeli assassination to any of the resistance leaders, as he said, is going to be uh, faced with retaliation and a harsh retaliation. Now, we'll all be waiting to see what Nasrallah is supposed to say in a speech that was still before the assassination of Aruri was planned for tomorrow. Now, we don't know if this speech is going to continue as scheduled tomorrow or it's going to be postponed for another couple of days for Hezbollah to uh, weigh its options because Actually, this is kind of a, a, a turning point in the whole confrontation with respect to the Lebanese, the Lebanese front. Uh, for, the, for, the, for the front in Gaza, it's just part of this whole context. But for the Lebanese front, it's, it could be a trigger 
for something bigger, especially that it comes a week after another assassination in Damascus. Israel is trying to take this whole confrontation uh, to, a new, to a new space. And this could mean not containing this war. Actually, many thought that the assassination of a senior Hamas leader could, could end this war. But the fact is that the assassination of a senior Hamas leader in Beirut could trigger a new, a new dramatic uh, context. And this is what many right now are really thinking. Observers can't really analyze in such, in such a moment. So uh, Saleh al-Aruri was assassinated, as we reported. He's a senior Hamas commander. He's a senior Hamas official. And, you know, the, the irony here is that Israel wasn't able to assassinate or kill any of the major or, or senior Hamas uh, officials and commanders in its three months' war in Gaza. At the end, it came and killed uh, one of Hamas's leaders in Beirut. This is, this is one of the ironies of this war. And Ali, you're talking to us uh, from Nakura in southern Lebanon, where you've been reporting for several days now on the ongoing uh, clashes between Hezbollah forces in southern Lebanon uh, and uh, Israel. Uh, what implications is, is the news of this uh, apparent assassination going to have uh, for, uh, for that aspect of, of, of the conflict? You know, uh, Hazem, there were rules of engagement that we've been referring to all over the past three months. Rules of engagement, whereas Hezbollah is hitting uh, uh, within three to five kilometers, sometimes 10 kilometers inside the Israeli territories, and Israel hitting also within the Lebanese territories towards the Litani River, which is like in a, in a, in a depth of 15 to 20 kilometers maximum. But today there is something outside the box. There's something outside the whole rules of engagement. And this, um, at least given the fact that Hezbollah committed to that in the past, this could mean, and well, we don't have a clear answer, but this could mean, if we want to, if we want to analyze, that Hezbollah is going to uh, respond from outside the rules of engagement. And what would this mean? This is, this is the big question. How is this going to, uh, to end? Is it going to end just with this hit, hit for a hit, hit for that? Or this is going to widen the scope of the war? This is what many people are actually concerned of. And, you know, in the past, in the past few weeks, people were leaving South Lebanon. And according to United Nations numbers, there are more than 70,000 southerners who are not anymore in their homes at the border. But now with a hit inside Beirut, in, in the southern suburb of Beirut, this is another reason for people to be concerned and for civilians to be feeling unsafe, unsafe anywhere, whether it's in the south or in Beirut. And this takes this whole confrontation, as we've been saying, into a new dimension. All right, for the moment, Ali Hashim in Nakora in Lebanon. Let's go to uh, Zaina Khodu, who joins us on the line now uh, from Beirut. So, Zaina, you have reported extensively uh, from the Lebanese capital for many years now. Uh, targeted assassinations, as this certainly appears to be, are unfortunately nothing new uh, in Beirut. But what do you make of uh, uh, what has happened here over the last hour? 
Well, nothing new, but the first assassination in years. And once news broke of an explosion in the southern suburbs of Beirut, which is an area where Hezbollah holds sway, I can tell you uh, there was panic. There was panic in the Lebanese The Lebanese know what what this means. Um, uh, There were reports of a targeted strike, a targeted assassination, uh, serious escalation. It definitely escalated and widened the ongoing conflict along the Lebanon-Israel border. The the conflict along the border is is now it's going to enter its, its fourth month. Um, But the targeted killing made many people here in the capital feel that this conflict could widen and could escalate. And all eyes are now on Hezbollah, Hezbollah's reaction. Because even before Hezbollah joined the battle to support its ally um, Hamas in Gaza, uh, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, made it very, very clear. And his equation was... Um, there will be a fierce retaliation if any leader of the axis of resistance, whether it's a Syrian, a Palestinian, a Lebanese, an Iranian, any leader killed in Lebanon will trigger a fierce uh, reaction. So people are waiting to hear, um, well, the Secretary General Nasrallah was, is supposed to speak tomorrow. It was a planned speech to commemorate the killing of the, uh, the Iranian force leader Qasem Soleimani. But there are some reports now that that speech could be cancelled. So it will really depend whether this, this serious escalation will lead to a full-scale conflict. Now, many in Lebanon will tell you that Israel is trying to trigger a conflict. Um, it has been escalating attacks in, in southern Lebanon, uh, and, but definitely this assassination crosses a red line, uh, and, and assassination uh, breaks really the rules of engagement, which have been in place for, for three months now. So all eyes on what uh, Hezbollah will do uh, following the killing of Saleh Aruri, and we have to point out that it is not just Salah Aruri, who was killed, um, he was killed along with a number of military commanders. Uh, so this was a, a, a serious blow to Hamas's military infrastructure, if you like, in Lebanon. And Zaina, just give us a sense of uh, how much of a presence uh, Hamas had, uh, not just in Beirut, but in, uh, in, in Lebanon in, gen- in general. What was the role uh, that uh, the Hamas operatives played there? Well, as of late, Lebanon became a safe haven, if you like, for the leaders of Hamas. As of late, it became uh, a strategic base for Hamas. After the rapprochement between Hamas and Hezbollah a few years back, there was a falling out um, following conflict in Syria. Since then, they have been slowly uh, building their, their infrastructure, the political presence in the country. Hezbollah and Hamas closely coordinate with each other. Uh, since the conflict on the border began, 
we've seen several meetings, uh, you know, between Hezbollah Secretary General Hassan Nasrallah as well as with uh, the assassinated uh, deputy leader of, of Hamas, Saleh Aruri. Uh, so, so you had this close coordination, and in many ways, uh, you know, they they were living and working. Uh, in in the southern suburbs of Beirut, uh, you know, some some would call this a, a Hezbollah stronghold, but this is a place where half a million people live. Uh, we are standing very close to the to the site of that explosion, and I can tell you, you know, you you, you look at people's faces. There there's fear and concern about what could come come next. Because this was what, what everyone was worried about, the conflict um, along the border um, widening. And, uh, but, but clearly this, this really is in, in many ways a turning point. But we have to see, uh, to see whether or not this serious escalation will lead to a full-scale uh, conflict between the Israeli army and the Lebanese armed group Hezbollah. All right, for the moment, Zaina Khadr uh, on the line for there uh, from Beirut. Thanks very much, Zaina. Welcome back. And uh, that report was from Al Jazeera on uh, the assassination of a leading Hamas figure in Beirut, uh, Lebanon. Here's another report uh, from Deutsche Welle, the uh, German uh, state uh, news agency. An explosion in Beirut has killed Saleh Aruri, a top official of the Palestinian militant group Hamas, which is considered a terror organization by the U.S., the EU, and many other countries. Lebanon's state-run news agency said the blast killed four people in a southern suburb of Beirut and was carried out by an Israeli drone. The suburb is considered a stronghold of Lebanon's Hezbollah militant group. Israeli officials declined to comment, but Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had threatened to kill Aruri even before the October 7th Hamas terror attacks. Let's get more on this from our correspondent Abbas Al-Khashali in Beirut. Abbas, what more can you tell us about this strike right now? Because, uh, as you say, it's uh, six persons, six people were killed in uh, uh, a drone strike today, what, two hours ago. Uh, it was uh, targeting um, uh, an Al-Dahi. Al-Dahi is in Beirut's uh, southern uh, suburbs. It's called Al-Dahi Al-Junubiya in Beirut. And we could hear the, the explosion it was quite uh, strong. Um, the officials say that um, there are three, three, three persons couldn't identify it, uh, were killed, and we are waiting for the, the, the next development. Um, Al-Dahi is well, it's a very busy area. It's, it's not far from here. It's from a DD office about five kilometers uh, far from here. And it's a very busy area in, in this time. It was uh, evening and everybody was on the road. And we maybe there are some civilians uh, being injured during this attack. Figure with Salehri in the ranks of Hamas. He is one of the top leaders in Hamas. He is uh, one of the founder of Al Qassam Group, the military wing uh, in Hamas, and he is um, he became uh, a member of uh, Politburo since 2010. And he uh, returned back to uh, Beirut uh, in uh, 2017. 
he was outside Beirut, and because there was some misunderstanding between Hezbollah and Hamas because of the war in Syria. So he is one of the most important uh, top leaders uh, in Hamas. Politburo uh, and uh, targeting him it means a lot to Hamas and for Hezbollah exactly especially because there's uh, being targeted this person being targeted by uh, um, in an uh, strike drone strike in Al Dahi south of Beirut so it means a lot you know. How have Lebanese authorities reacted to this strike in the capital? There are different kinds of reactions. Um, there are some politicians uh, condemned, uh, condemned the, uh, the attack and uh, this strike, and uh, the Prime Minister of Lebanon, uh, he said, uh, Mr. Mikati, uh, condemned uh, Israel's killing of uh, Lauri. Uh, he said uh, the attack aims to draw Lebanon further into the Israel-Hamas war, uh, uh, into a new phase of the uh, confrontation with with, uh, with Israel, and um, now we heard that uh, Lebanon um, to uh, submit complaint to uh, UN Security Council against the strike. So uh, there are some um, uh, some reactions here, but the people here around in Beirut are very worried, and uh, the situation became really complicated and very critical. Now, we have to be clear here that Israel has not yet claimed or has not claimed responsibility for this strike. Uh, you mentioned there the um, Prime Minister talking about being drawn into a conflict among the population. How big are fears of a wider conflict? Uh, the, the fears is quite big, in fact, because uh, we were talking here in Lebanon, the people talking here in Lebanon about, they call it like the uh, rules of engagement between Israel and Hezbollah. Now uh, there is a new dynamic uh, for this conflict. We are talking about targeting Al-Bahi, the south uh, suburbs of uh, Beirut. So now we, are, we, are, we have a new rules, maybe. Nobody knows, um, especially that uh, the people are waiting tomorrow uh, speech of uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of, of Hezbollah. And we don't know how will the situation uh, will be uh, continued and how, how will be, how will be um, uh, developed. Nobody knows. Uh, the people are waiting uh, the speech of Hassan Nasrallah. And usually when he is speaking about something uh, about Israel and the conflict with Israel, uh, the people are in Lebanon very worried and they are uh, waiting his speech carefully uh, because um, uh, Hezbollah is one is well-trained uh, fighter. They have about 100,000 fighters, well-trained fighters in Lebanon. And they are, um, they are always on the south of Lebanon. We were talking about before about um, uh, uh, targeting uh, on the border, Israel targeting uh, uh, villages or some uh, fighters of Hezbollah on the border, Lebanese border, and Hezbollah targeting and uh, strikes another, another, um, uh, another uh, on the other side of Israel. Now we are talking about targeting and strike inside Beirut, and this means a lot. So Abbas al-Khashali, thank you for that. Thank you. And moving on to Sami Sokol, who's following the story for us from Tel Aviv. Sami, what has the reaction in Israel been to the Beirut strike? Well, uh, first of all, uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has uh, ordered the ministers of his uh, cabinet uh, not to give any statements uh, about this uh, strike. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Danny Danon, uh, who is a member of the Likud uh, party, and he's also a member of the Foreign 
and the security committee inside the Knesset. It's a committee that is exposed to a, a top a secrets and so forth. He commented on Twitter by congratulating the IDF, the Mossad, the Shin Bet for the uh, assassination of uh, Saleh al-Aruri. And uh, what he's saying and others is that Saleh al-Aruri, uh, not, not only is he number two of the uh, Hamas uh, movement, uh, but he's also uh, the one who was engaged in the attack that was launched uh, in uh, October, uh, the 7th of October attack. And uh, what commentators here are saying that this uh, strike that was launched by Israel is a very successful one, as it was a, a, maybe the most successful uh, attack that Israel launched since the beginning of its war against Hamas, and that this is a great achievement for the Israeli intelligence uh, that has uh, failed on the 7th of October, and now it has come uh, back to its uh, reputation of being a force that can target and kill an individual in a crowded uh, city in an exact way. Yeah, still, we need to be precise. Israel has not claimed responsibility for the killing of Saleh Aruri. How big are fears in Israel that events like these could escalate the conflict with Hamas to a regional war? Yeah, well, indeed, the uh, cabinet was going to have a meeting uh, tonight here in uh, Tel Aviv uh, to discuss uh, Gaza and so forth. Well, this uh, meeting has been cancelled because of the uh, latest uh, developments, and uh, there is concern that uh, Hezbollah will launch uh, missiles uh, towards Israel. On the other hand, uh, there is also a, an assessment that maybe the movement uh, will decide not to strike at Israel uh, because Israel strikes a, a Hamas, a Palestinian target, rather than a Lebanese uh, target and that uh, Hezbollah will be paying a very heavy price if it will launch uh, lo uh, long-range missiles uh, towards Israel. But I can tell you the ones that are most worried are the uh, families of the hostages. Uh, there is a report that Hamas has announced that the talks are finished uh, because of this assassination, and the many family members of hostages that are kept in Gaza are fearful that uh, this will postpone any kind of development in the release of their uh, loved ones. There is another report that uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State of the United States, that was supposed to come here, postponed his uh, trip. Uh, we don't have a confirmation of that. But nevertheless, uh, Israel is bracing for an escalation. That was journalist Sami Sokol in Tel Aviv. Thanks for that update. And for a closer look, we can now speak to Hans-Jakob Schindler. He's the senior director at the Counterterrorism Project. That's an NGO, an international policy group. He joins us from New York City. Good to see you. Can you tell us more about Hamas deputy leader Saleh Aruri? Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I mean, as uh, some of your previous speakers have said, he's a really senior figure in the movement. He was there right from the beginning. He radicalized already in 85 and he was studying in Hebron and then joined Hamas right from the outset when the organization was founded in 1988, co-founding the Al-Qazam Brigades, 
From that time, of course, it's also a personal relationship between him and Yahya Sinwar, the current leader of Hamas in Gaza and the mastermind behind the October 7 attacks. He was then multiple years in Israeli jails, released in 2010, allegedly as part of the Gilad Shalit deal, although Hamas denied this, and then left uh, Israel for Syria, got thrown out of Syria because of the civil war in 2012, went to Turkey, got thrown out of Turkey in 2015, went to Qatar, got thrown out of Qatar in 2017, and is uh, or has been in Beirut as the quasi-Hamas ambassador to Hezbollah and one of the key liaison individuals of Hamas to the Islamic Republic of Iran. There's also videos of him being in a meeting with Iranian Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. So really a key, very experienced organizer and leader of the Hamas movement. Could his killing weaken Hamas? To a certain extent, it does. Obviously, Hamas is a collective leadership, so there's more than one individual that leads the organization. But uh, there is a limited amount of uh, operatives, especially terror operatives, um, with this amount of experience, that amount of international relations, and that amount of insights into Hamas finances outside the Gaza Strip than Aruri. So in a way, of course, it will weaken Hamas, but of course, it's nothing like a silver bullet that would now really hamper the... Uh, organization's ability in, in Gaza to, you know, fight Israel. Salih Ruri was living in Lebanon. How strong is Hamas's presence in the country? Um, Hamas's presence in the country really is um, a function of its relationship with Hezbollah in Iran. That's where the connection's happening. Allegedly, he was killed in a meeting between Hezbollah, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and uh, Hamas uh, in Beirut uh, a couple of hours ago. So in a way, it is more of a representation rather than an operational area for Hamas. Now, Israel has not claimed responsibility. Is there anyone else that you are aware of who would be interested in moving Al-Saleh out of the picture? I mean, clearly Israel is, of course, the country and the government most likely to have done this. Uh, as in the past, unless they're absolutely forced to, they're not going to admit to extrajudicial killings outside of the Palestinian territories. But uh, I don't see anyone uh, that has the same likelihood than Israel to have uh, conducted that attack. And now with, with this having happened, reactions are, are coming in. Do you think that fears of a widening of this conflict in the region are justified? Well, of course, in this tense situation, anything is, of course, a bit of a risk. Uh, I, I see that some Israeli politicians are already doing some damage control. Mark Regev, the senior advisor to Netanyahu, said very clearly uh, he doesn't know who did it, uh, but whoever did it, this was not an attack against uh, the state of Lebanon. Um, there has been a slow but very steady heating up of the Hezbollah's attacks uh, to Israel every day, every week. There are more rockets going into uh, northern Israel. So it is, of course, a tense situation. But as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said in November, Israel is going to hunt down all of the significant Hamas leaders wherever they are. And so it seems very much this is the first time they actually made good on that front. Senior Director of Counter Extremism, the Counter Extremism Project, Hans Jakob Schindler, thank you for your assessment. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back. 
And uh, that was a report on the assassination of a leading Hamas figure earlier today uh, in Lebanon. The Republic of South Africa uh, is filing a case against the State of Israel at the International Court of Justice in The Hague in the Netherlands. Let's listen to a discussion on the uh, rationale behind uh, the lawsuit and also the historic role of South Africa in solidarity uh, with the Palestinian people. Now, South Africa has approached the International Court of Justice under the Genocide Convention. This is with respect to acts committed by Israel in the context of its attacks on Gaza. Government has raised concerns over the plight of civilians caught in the Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip. This is due to the indiscriminate use of force and forcible removal of inhabitants. International Relations Spokesperson Gleason Mongela says the South African government has repeatedly stated that it condemns all violence and attacks against all civilians, including Israelis. So we speak on this. We joined by uh, Lebohang Peko, who's a senior research fellow and political economist at the Trade Collective. Ms. Peko, thank you so much for your time on the agenda today. First, let's just start off thank by you. getting your reaction to South Africa filing an urgent application mm-hmm. at the International Court of Justice. This is also accusing, of course, uh, the, uh, those accusations. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing is that it's important that South Africa has taken this stand, particularly as a country that has understood settler colonialism and apartheid very clearly in the past. Um, it's a show of international solidarity, but it's also a reminder that we do have a particular affinity to the cause. Secondly, I think that for we are on the correct side of history and her story in this instance, because I think that speaking about the genocide convention understanding, I mean, the, the, the claim um, that has been put forward to the ICC speaks about the racialization of um, settler occupation um, inflicted by the Israeli state. It also speaks about the importance of humanitarianism. Um, it also speaks about the importance of ensuring that civilians are in no part um, part of the collateral damage of this supposed war, but it's actually an aggression and disproportionate aggression of Israel upon the people of, of Palestine. And, more, and quite importantly, and lastly, it, it makes a, a clear distinction between Hamas as a resistance group and the people people of Palestine, the civilians, the women, the children, the men who are caught up in this extremely disproportional and extremely violent crossfire. And let's talk about how does the Genocide Convention define the crime of genocide? I mean, the, 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 the Genocide Convention actually speaks about the attempt to annihilate an entire people. It speaks about some of the things I've already mentioned about proportionality. It is also an act of an intent and aggression. So I think that unlike many other um, um, you know, acts of war, which perhaps would be seen as unforeseeable, where the casualties and the level of casualties would be seen as unknowable um, beforehand. This is this, the, the, the distinction here is that genocide is an act of commission. It is an act of intentionality, um, and that is exactly what the, the, the statute of Rome also speaks to. And there are just previous um, precedents to this. We have precedents, for example, the the, the war that took place, um, you know, the, the the fall of Czechoslovakia, the Bosnian War 
where, in fact, I think for the first time, genocide was seen as a war crime and also rape as an act of as an act of war and an act of aggression and so forth. We've also seen, of course, previously with Rwanda, where this was seen as an act of 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 complicit of complicitness um, and an act of commission. And this is where the act of genocide cannot be seen as a mere act of war among other wars. And of course, Israel has rejected the charge with Israeli uh, foreign ministry spokesperson, you know, writing on X, formerly Twitter, that Israel rejects with disgust the blood libel spread by South Africa mm. and its application to the ICJ. What does this mean? Does this mean that now the battle lines have been drawn between Israel and South Africa? Well, it remains to be seen, but I mean, as we know in politics, there are no permanent friends or, or enemies, but certainly the relationship between Israel and South Africa has become increasingly frosty, one might say, particularly since we have closed, formally closed um, diplomatic relations and asked the, you know, there's closed the Israeli embassy and the Israeli mission to South Africa. Um, it also means that, of course, by, by it, it, will, it remains to be seen whether then this means that there'll be shift in relations between, and, and the extent to which Israel is able to um, mobilize its own allies, specifically the United States, um, and specifically countries like the United Kingdom within the EU, because even the European Union as a bloc are not a coherent uh, grouping in the, in, on, on, the, on the Zionist Israeli issue, which is very important to note. Um, and I think it also remains to be seen whether or not the, the, the other, the, their allies, their strong allies, are themselves willing to become persona non grata and to become alienated either economically, politically going forward. Because as we appreciate in the realm of international relations, these are not only short-term issues. These are also long-term broader scale issues. And, you know, as you know um, very well, Buti, that, you know, my enemies are not necessarily your enemies in the, in the realm of international relations. So other countries, uh, although it's tempting for people to think that perhaps we are the ones who should be cautious as South Africa, but I think that every country should be cautious as to who they consort with, how they make alliances, build alliances, and break those alliances, and think about the long-term costs and implications of what these actions may or may not have. And on that very same breath, I think the uh, foreign affairs spokesperson also went on to accuse South Africa of cooperating with what he calls a terrorist organization that is calling for the destruction of Israel. Let's get your view on this. I mean, I think that it's, it's extremely regrettable that we are in a realm where there's so little nuance um, and such a strong, um, such a, such a, such a, an ethical, uh, the compass of, ethic, of ethics, of international ethics and human ethics is so skewed that, um, you know, acts of terror and acts of state aggression as they have been conducted by a country like Israel are actually then in some way moderated, defended, and, and, and viewed as somehow um, defensible, in fact. And I think that this false equivalency, for example, between a settler, a settler colony, um, a settler colonized state uh, like Palestine, which is under-resourced, uh, versus a, a, a militarized state, a military state like Israel, who are then trying to pretend that there's an equivalency and are also trying to act as though um, anybody who speaks against them are then anti-Semitic and so forth. And even the languaging, the nuance is extremely 
is, is extremely difficult and makes it difficult to then see the, the trees within the woods. But I also think that what's also been important in this is that it reminds many of us who have been um, the, the subjects of settler colonialism and, and international imperial international relations as well, of uh, in fact how easy it is um, to lose sight of what is correct and what is incorrect. Um, and I think that what's been very important in the last few weeks in the, in the midst of the atrocities and, and of, I think, the horrible, grim, graphic images that we've been seeing coming out of Palestine and out of the Gaza Strip is a reminder of how, in fact, um, these sorts of international power relations continue to, const uh, to, to construct and reconstruct themselves. And I think that it's also important that we remember we, where we ourselves come from. It is of no surprise that, of course, that Israel is bound to be defensive um, and bound to be quite hostile and, and slightly arrogant about this. Um, and I also think that they're running out of legroom um, in the international arena. And speaking of those nuances that you touched on, is Israel breaching its obligation under the Genocide Convention? They have been. I mean, I think even the idea of, of Israel, Budi, in and of itself is deeply contested. You know, the idea of Israel is, um, is one that we have seen being, you know, we, we saw with, the, with the, for example, the passing of Henry Kissinger, um, the reminders of the concessions that have been made in this regard. What is today modern day Palestine versus what was originally agreed on problematically, um, you know, uh, in, in the 1940s, 75 years ago, is hardly as one fifth of what existed at the time. So you can imagine if, for example, if South Africa had received our independence in 1994, such as it is, um, and then we had seen a slow incursion um, back into, for example, being forced into a space the size of, say, former Boputatswana, um, you know, if we'd then been forced into, a, you know, a country, uh, a, country, a territory uh, the size of Kwazulu, uh, how absolutely egregious that we would find this. And this is exactly what, you know, so, um, so Israel has been able to, be, to, 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 to be, to get away with over the last um, 75 ways um, with the complicity of some very elasticated interpretations, um, particularly under the, the guidance and the tutelage of the United States in, in particular, and they almost seem to have a, a, a trans-international, trans-state um, status. Um, among the body of polity, of international polity. Um, so, for example, any other country which had tried this sort of aggression would either have been dissolved by now or would have uh, met with immense resistance by international powers. And when I say international, read that as Euro-US powers. And of course, just quickly before I let you go, what will a decision by the International Court of Justice mean and would that decision in particular be final? Yeah, those decisions, Buti, have very little local standi only because of the, the, the fact that it takes firstly a long time to even get a sitting. Um, you know, there have been laundry lists 
of war crimes that have been committed over decades, which to date have not been um, um, adjudicated by the ICC. There have also been, of course, I mean, there are already issues around even the ICJ as whether or not it's actually per se a, a neutral arbiter of these issues. Some of these issues can take years to be met. So I think we should view this per se as placing on record in the strongest term our own um, dissatisfaction, anger, and disapproval of this. But in terms of it being actually bearing any fruit legally, I think it's very unlikely. Also bear in mind that the cost of litigation is extremely expensive. Um, and then, you know, that it's a game of attrition. I mean, it takes years and years. And only with political support and political will um, have the really high-profile cases actually been heard. So, you know, when you have a a Charles Taylor, for example, who is tried at the cost of millions and millions of dollars U.S. And I think that, you know, many people, of course, are already unhappy with the notion that, you know, the ICJ as a construct, as an idea, is itself, in, my, in some respects, very much um, often, oftentimes acting in the interests that are not, per se, for African countries and for countries of the global south. So I think we should be very modest in our expectations, but I do still think that in terms of our own jurisprudence, developing African-centered international jurisprudence, um, that shows that we have a voice in international matters that is very loud and important. That is the significance of this. All right, that's Lebo Hang Peko. She's Senior Research Fellow and Political Economist at the Trade Collective. Thanks very much indeed for your insight. And that was a report uh, from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. We want to thank our colleagues at the SABC for making that report available on the International uh, Court of Justice, uh, taking a complaint uh, by the Republic of South Africa against State of Israel for violation of the Genocide Convention. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
Candy Staten and darling, you're all that I had, and you're listening to the Pan African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for this Tuesday, uh, January 2nd, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. Uh, we're going to go back uh, to developments in Palestine and how the struggle in Palestine has mobilized youth across the world today. Demonstrations worldwide reflect widespread outrage over Israel's war on Gaza. Young people have been at the forefront, driven to political action by the images and stories of Palestinian suffering. Could this global youth support for Palestine have long-term impacts? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Elizabeth Puranam. Israel's war on Gaza has brought catastrophic suffering to Palestinians. Tens of thousands have been killed or injured, and most of the 2.3 million people living there have been forced to move or are now homeless. The scale of Israel's onslaught has triggered global outrage. Younger people have been mobilized and protested, with some demonstrating for the first time in support of Palestinians. Many are angered by the financial and military support given by their governments to Israel. That money has been used to directly kill or maim Palestinians, including thousands of children. So how important is the war on Gaza for young people in the West? And could these protest movements have wide and lasting political impact? We'll be asking our guests these questions and more in a few moments. But first, Victoria Gatenby reports on how young people around the world have showed their support for Palestinians in Gaza. College campuses across the United States have been turned into places of protest since the start of Israel's war on Gaza. Polls show a generational divide has opened up over the conflict. Those widely known as Generation Z and young millennials are more likely than their parents or grandparents to feel sympathy for Palestinians and to disagree with U.S. President Joe Biden's unconditional support for Israel. I believe that the U.S. and the media has been very much on Israel's side without um, realizing that Palestinians have been going through suffering for 75 plus years at the hands of Israelis. It's a trend that extends beyond the United States. Research suggests young people in Europe are also more likely to be sympathetic towards Palestinians than older generations. In contrast, the Israeli government, led by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, is the most right-wing in the country's history. Analysts say for many young people, the issue isn't only about the suffering of Palestinians, but injustice. We're starting to see what's happening in Palestine, not just in Gaza, as a justice and racism issue, that uh, this is something they don't stand for. They were against it when it came to black lives and the uh, you know, march for justice, racial justice in the United States and throughout the West. And they're seeing what's happening in Palestine in similar ways, from a similar you know, prism. Social media has shaped young people's views of the war, Posts supporting Palestine and those backing Israel were roughly equal after the attacks by Hamas on October the 7th. 
Two weeks later, four times as many backed Palestine than Israel, and content supportive of Palestinians dominated every platform. Social media has undeniably played a crucial role in both exposing the truth behind mainstream media's propaganda that's designed to misinform, but also it plays a role in exposing uh, the contextual realities, the disproportionate power dynamics, and how Israel is absolved almost as an exception. More recently, Human Rights Watch says Meta has silenced posts in support of Palestine on Instagram and Facebook. But young people in the U.S. and in cities across the world are continuing to protest, to show solidarity and call for peace. Victoria Gatenby, Al Jazeera for Inside Story. Well, for more on this, I'm joined by our guests. In Washington, D.C. is Dana Al-Kurd, a non-resident senior fellow at the Arab Center of Washington, D.C. In New Jersey is Zeli Imani, a Black Lives Matter activist and co-founder of the Black Liberation Collective. And in London is Noga Levy-Rappaport, a youth climate activist involved in Palestine solidarity campaigns in the U.K. A very warm welcome to all of you. Ms. Al-Kurd, I'll begin with you in Washington, D.C. Just how much has Israel's war on Gaza, would you say, revitalized support among the world's youth for the Palestinian cause? Yes, thank you for having me. Um, so in terms of Israel's recent conduct um, sparking so much mobilization, as your reporting uh, showed, um, we have uh, a great deal of evidence to suggest that um, young people and uh, the pro-Palestine solidarity movement generally is growing. Um, so, for example, the Crowd Counting Consortium, which is a joint project of the University of Connecticut and the Nonviolent Action Lab at the Harvard Kennedy Center, uh, School, um, showed that between October 7th and November 26th, there were close to 2,000 pro-Palestine rallies, march, marches, demonstrations, uh, all sorts of mobilizations in 40, 468 different cities and towns, and across 49 U.S. states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, and Guam. This is just in the United States. And by December, uh, Jay Ofelder, the a researcher on the project, noted that on the pro-Israel side, so there are also pro-Israel protests, but on that side, it's mostly counter-protests. Um, so the largest share of pro-Israel activity is not pro-Israel rallies, vigils, or demonstrations. It's actually almost always direct counters to pro-Palestine uh, uh, protests. Um, and what this has uh, done in the, in the last period, um, but I would argue has started before this latest war, um, is it has mainstreamed the pro-Palestine issue in uh, both American politics, is, which is what I can speak on, um, but also in uh, the politics of a lot of Western countries. That is really interesting. Uh, Mr. Imani, uh, Ms. Al-Kurd is saying 2,000 protests across the United States since October the 7th. Of course, not all communities in the U.S. will be supporting the Palestinian cause because of the same reasons. Why do people who support the Black Lives Matter movement also largely advocate for Palestinians? That's um, a great question. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement comes from the black radical tradition. And the black radical tradition has a long history of having allyship with um, decolonial movements 
particularly the Palestinian Liberation Movement. And we could trace that legacy all the way back to the 1960s with Malcolm X, who visited um, Palestine and was able to witness the refugee camps and tour the hospitals and really get a firsthand experience about the atrocities that was happening in Palestine and bring that information back to uh, Black America. And that continued that legacy from Malcolm X to the Black Panther Party all the way into, I believe, like 2014 with the death of Mike Brown in Fergus, Missouri. When I was in Fergus, Missouri, protesting the, the death of Mike Brown and we was getting um, hit with rubber bullets and being tear gassed, it was Palestinians who were sending us tweet messages about how to deal with the effects of tear gas. And that opened up a whole new generation to the Palestinian plight and brought up this solidarity movement, reignited this solidarity movement that was kind of dormant for a few years and is continuing on to this day. And by having these conversations, by building this collaboration, um, the slow movement, the slow mm -hmm. build, I think it's why we are witnessing this, this growth of right. um, black and Palestinian solidarity now. And what you're mentioning is really interesting about what happened in Ferguson, Missouri, because we know that American police have trained with Israeli soldiers, that there has been some collaboration there. And you are saying that protesters, Palestinian protesters, were telling people taking part in Black Lives Matter protests about how to deal uh, with, those, with those security forces who have trained together. Uh, Ms. Levy Rappaport, let me bring you in here. You're in London in the United Kingdom, and I was reading that the United Kingdom has seen some of the, we've seen, in fact, over the past more than two months, the United Kingdom has, some of the, has had some of the biggest protests against Israel's war on Gaza and has some of the largest support for Palestinians among the youth there. Why is that? I think fundamentally, young people in the UK have been witness to the decay of our economic and social systems across at least the last 15 years, if not more, grounded in the neoliberalist principles that underpin the austerity that has taken place, the anti-refugee laws that our hard right government is attempting to shoehorn in, and a very serious lack of opposition. What we have seen as a result is that young people in the UK feel utterly betrayed by their leaders and they feel utterly betrayed by their media. Instead, they've had to turn to social media to watch Palestinians their age be forced into becoming journalists whilst their elder journalists mm -hmm. are being killed by Israel or because they simply have no other choice but to document the destruction of their people and their country. These young people are our age and they could have been any one of us. Mm -hmm. We are a country with a very serious historic responsibility in the power that Israel has over Palestine and in the very creation of Israel itself. Young people who are growing up in this country have heard some of our greatest storytellers, some of our greatest national poets, like the late Benjamin Bethaniah, dream of a free Palestine in their lifetime. We have not yet witnessed that, and now we are witnessing this genocidal campaign. On top of all of this, young people have been seriously affected by some of the greatest tragedies in the UK, such as the Grenfell Tower fire, which was caused by the flammable cladding built by the company Arconic who produced parts for the F-35 fighter jets that Israel has used in its campaigns against Gaza in the past. These are devastating occurrences, and they connect us deeply yeah. to Palestine. They connect us because we are a country of migrants, and we are 
a country that is proud to be a country of migrants. And there are so many Palestinian refugees living amongst us, telling us their stories and sharing their stories with us. You're bringing As up young the, people, we have to You are bringing up many important points there that are central to this discussion. You're saying that as young people you have tools, and of course one of the greatest tools that people who are in support of Palestine have used is social media. Ms. Elkert, what role do you think social media has played in why we see that great divide now between uh, older people in the West uh, generally supporting Israel and the younger supporting Palestinians. We see a lot more pro-Palestinian content on social media than pro-Israeli, pro-Israel rather. Yeah, so, right, right. So social media obviously does play a role, um, not just in the pro-Palestine movement, uh, just generally, uh, because social media allows um, for a user to um, go to the source, uh, pick up on information from people who are actually there, um, as, as Noga mentioned. So people are looking at what Gazans are saying. They're going on TikTok, they're going on Instagram, they're going on, you know, all the different social media apps to um, break away from the uh, more mainstream narratives um, and more mainstream media uh, coverage. And in fact, a lot of that kind of social media activity and how Palestinians um, on the ground in particular, have seized on that social media activity, has been able to then impact mainstream media coverage and, and correct mainstream media coverage. And so that's very empowering, uh, um, both for the Palestinians on the ground, but for the people who want to learn more and, and um, see and, and want to break free of some of the, the biases that they're seeing. Um, that being said, social media obviously is, is not uh, a magic bullet. Uh, social media um, is not a public uh, space. They are private companies. They are, um, you know, controlled by uh, private corporations that then can uh, shadow ban, can change the algorithm, um, can can play around with how much information people are getting and what kinds of information people are getting. And we see that with what happened to Twitter, now X, where um, misinformation and disinformation around mm-hmm. Israel and, uh, and Palestine right now is, is so widespread. On top of that, social media is also very top-heavy meaning that a small amount of users can really impact the discourse. Um, That can be good in some ways if you're elevating voices on the ground, and that can also be bad um, because um, there are power differentials between who gets elevated Mm -hmm. and who doesn't. People who look good, people who speak English, people, you know, so... um, I think that it does also skew... Who people are advocating for, right? Because we have seen... Uh, many who are supporting Palestinians, especially very high-profile people with a very large following on across different social media accounts being shadow banned or being outright banned, those who have been in support of Palestine. We've also seen the conversation um, around free speech getting muddled, haven't we? Mr. Imani, if I can bring you in on the sort of speech and free speech on the subject People who support the Black Lives Matter movement have been accused of anti-white racism, which is something that we've really seen, especially on social media when it comes to those who support Palestinians. Anyone who's supporting Palestinians is being accused of anti-Semitism in the same way that those who support the Black Lives Matter movement have been accused of anti-white racism. 
Yes, I mean, it's exactly very similar, right? That when the Black Lives Matter movement really first emerged, one of the ways that the oppressor tries to um, silence the oppressed is try to um, criminalize them and demonize them, right? They try to call the Black Lives Matter movement anti-white or um, racist when we were actually trying to um, bring to light the atrocities and the trauma and violence experiencing, experienced by black people and try to dismantle those very policies and practices and institutions institutions to actually bring true freedom and justice. And the oppressor doesn't want that. Just like the oppressor does not want a free and liberated Palestine. So they try to demonize anyone that is pro-Palestine, demonize certain phrases, like, for example, from the river to the sea, and try to make that anyone who is anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic, which is not true. Being um, anti-Zionist is not the same thing as being anti-Semitic. So we have to continue to educate people just like how we had to educate people for the Black Lives Matter movement. And we'll surely, slowly see that shift where more people are able to comfortably talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. And now we're seeing more people comfortably being pro-Palestine than we were maybe like five or six or seven years ago. Yeah. Noga Levy Rappaport, I want to bring you in there because you're in a unique position in that you were born in Israel to a family that was anti-occupation. How did you uh, come to be involved in Palestinian in groups supporting Palestine? And have you seen any change within the youth where they don't accept that criticizing Zionism is being anti-Semitic? There are certainly moves um, legislating in the opposite direction, especially in the U.S. and even in European countries. But how does the youth see that? Yes, the young people around the U.K. and really beginning in many parts of Israel must and have been understanding that Zionism and Judaism are not the same thing at all. Zionism is an ideology that has been subsumed entirely into Israel's genocidal campaign against Gaza and into its apartheid regime over Palestine and the occupied territories. But young people living in the UK walk amongst Jews and Muslims who live together in peace. They walk amongst Jews, Christians, Muslims, and all other faiths who live together in peace. And so they see that this is a falsity, that uh, Israelis and Palestinians can only live along religiously divided lines. My best friend is a Palestinian Muslim. I am an anti-Zionist Jew. These are existences that Israel attempts to deny, but young people living in the UK cannot deny what they see in front of their own eyes. And in fact, the active intentions of Israel's propaganda and many of our media channels, which are not criticizing this propaganda effectively enough, have led young people to feel betrayed by their media. And so they've turned elsewhere to try to understand what Zionism is and why they must oppose it without being anti-Semitic. All right. Ms. Al-Kurd, Yoga uh, Noga, rather, Noga Levy-Rappaport was giving us the situation, how young people see this subject of Zionism um, and anti-Semitism in the UK. What about among youth in America? I know that you do polling among young Democrats, young Republicans. How do they differ on this? So I don't myself do polling in the United States. I do polling in the Arab world, but I do follow um, uh, and keep track of polling. Um, what we're seeing um, on um, on the question of Israel and the differentiations across generations between older Democrats and younger Democrats is quite stark. Um, so, for example, a Quinnipiac University poll 
showed that Biden's approval rating for his handling of the Israel-Hamas war um, was uh, amongst Democrats only at 56 percent, um, and that the lion's share, 69 percent, of Democrats and Democratic-leaning people under 35 disapprove of how Biden is uh, viewing this war. Um, also, young Democrats um, say that uh, – 61% of young Democrats say, um, according to a Pew poll that was just released in December, say that Israel is going too far compared with 31% of conservatives mm-hmm. or moderate Democrats. Um, and so we have all of these polling uh, points to suggest mm-hmm. that there is this generational gap. And I do want to pick up on something that one of, one of the guests mentioned, um, which is that um, we are talking about how different communities come to pro-Palestine activism, but we really must mention the American Jewish community. Um, American, an American Jewish generation that was activated by the Occupy movement, that was activated by the Bernie Sanders campaign, um, that was activated also by organizing around the 2014 Gaza war, um, that are now playing a, um, a crucial role in organizing a lot of those, you know, 2000 plus protests that we've seen yeah. since October 7th that are, that are pro-Palestinian. Um, and think, Basically saying, giving a message to people, and I'm not just suggesting only anti-Zionists, but just the larger kind of uh, um, maybe whatever label they want to call themselves, post-Zionist, whatever. But they're basically saying to people that there is a differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, they are making that differentiation uh, amongst the American public and saying that even if we want and we agree with Jewish safety, which, of course, is a demand that all of us should agree with, um, that that does not entail the uh, actions that are taking place right now. And that has been a very crucial factor. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that Jewish Voice for Peace, for instance, has been one of the groups that's been most vocal against what Israel's doing in Gaza and support for the Palestinians. Mr. Imani, how much does ethnic diversity factor in the youth population Um, in America, where you are for support for Palestinians? We've seen, you know, Gallup polls, for example, show that older or rather older and uh, white Americans support Israel more than non-white Americans and that there are more mixed race people among younger populations. Yes, I think that um, many people of color, uh, we know oppression, we know genocide, we know um, colonization, we know these things, we know the experiences of it, we know the strategies of the oppressor of disenfranchisement, um, occupation, and so on and so forth. We know this, whether it is in the United States and America or the, the countries that we are descended from. So we have, many of us have uh, a, real, a real love and affinity for other people who are also um, colonized and are also going through that struggle because we experience it ourselves. We experience the fact that when we try to speak up, we are oftentimes criminalized and demonized. So again, going back to the whole Black Lives Matter movement, it's by continually saying Black Lives Matter that we're able to um, popularize that phrase and have people understand that we are not trying to um, deny anyone else's humanity, but to affirm the humanity of Black people. Just just the same way that when we say um, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, we're not saying that we want the death of anyone, but we're saying that we want freedom and liberty for all people. And that freedom and liberty should not be just exclusive to one set of people, but it should be um, available yeah. to all people living and, on that land. And yet we've seen U.S. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib being censured for uh, saying that in support of Palestinians. Uh, Noga Levy Rappaport, you know, you touched on 
the UK's historical role in colonization. And uh, Mr. Imani was talking about, you know, that uh, people that they know um, oppression because of colonization. The, again, we've seen some of the biggest protests in the UK. Do you think that that's how much pressure or change has that led to in what the people in power are doing? I think it's leading to an enormous amount of pressure. We saw a very unfortunate uh, vote against a ceasefire just two months ago, um, which did not result in a majority against the ceasefire. But there were numerous politicians who were made incredibly aware that when we go to the general election next year, a majority of their constituents who may have voted for them before are seriously reconsidering. We're seeing how young people in particular who have been capable of building enormous pressure in the UK over the last five years alone, whether that be around climate justice, Black Lives Matter movement, Kill the Bill protests, or Reclaim Our Streets movements, are now witnessing and testifying to the connection between the repressive laws in Israel against the Palestinians and the repressive crackdowns on our right to protest here. This is fueling a fire within mm -hmm youth movements here to ensure that we continue to fight back against these crackdowns. Young people have turned out in their hundreds and thousands for climate mm -hmm. justice, but now they're witnessing that Palestinians don't have full security and autonomy over their own climate, their own water, their own yeah. security, and their own environment. And this is an injustice that they are feeling very deeply, that we are feeling very deeply all across the world. Yeah, the again, an intersectionality there of different justice movements. Mr. Imani, do you think that there's anything that the uh, protests in support of Palestinians can learn when it comes to your movement and affecting change at the policy level? I think the, the biggest thing that um, all women can learn is um, solidarity and collaboration. Um, there's power in, in that, and that's the biggest thing that we can um, learn from each other's movement. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily about um, how can we influence politicians, it's about how can we learn about each other's cultures, how can we learn about each other's struggles, and how can we collaborate more in order to get the things that we, win, we right. want. Because it's not just about changing who's in office, it's about actually getting um, freedom and liberation for um, all of our people. All right, we don't have very long left, so I'd like to ask uh, Ms. Al-Kurd, the last question. Do you think that the activism that we've seen has translated into actual policy? What will it take for that to happen? I think what this moment has shown is that all of this activism is, is obviously crucial because it holds, it holds politicians and it holds policymakers accountable. Um, and especially in the United States, where there is an election coming up, it can raise the stakes. Um, but at the same time, it is quite disappointing to see how far our decision makers and our policy makers have been willing to go, even despite all of these protests and all of this mobilization. So I think that is something that the pro-Palestine movement um, needs to contend with at some point, which is how to translate this into actual power, mm -hmm. um, because mobilization is only one level. Of, of, uh, of political power and, and a check on, on the power sources, um, but it is not the only way that we can engage with politics, and, and that is something that, that needs to be discussed um, moving forward. All right. 
thank you to all of our guests, that is Dana Al-Kurd, Zeli Imani, and Noga Levy-Rappaport. And thank you too for watching. You can see the program again anytime by visiting our website, aljazeera.com. And for further discussion, go to our Facebook page, that's facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. You can also join the conversation on X, our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Elizabeth Puranam, and the whole team here, bye for now. Welcome back. And that was a discussion uh, on the impact of the siege on Gaza upon youth um, in the region and throughout the entire international community that has mobilized them in the billions. And right now we want to move into our last segment. Uh, there's been much discussion about a purported new phase of the war against Gaza. The Israeli Defense Forces are demobilizing um, and withdrawing units of their armed forces uh, from Gaza. What does this mean? Let's listen to this report uh, for uh, some analysis uh, in regard to the situation there. What does a new phase in Israel's war on Gaza entail? Its army is pulling some troops from the Strip. It says it's adopting more targeted operations against Hamas. Can Israel still achieve its objectives in the war? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Elizabeth Puranam. Israel's longest war is entering a new phase. Nearly three months in, Israel's military is pulling some of its forces out of Gaza. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the fight against Hamas will continue for many more months. The new strategy, it seems, will focus on carrying out more targeted attacks against the armed group. But with more than 20,000 Palestinians killed and millions displaced, some are questioning whether Israel can achieve its military goals. Political divisions inside and outside Israel are fueling criticism of Netanyahu's handling of the war and quite possibly shaping his decisions on how to approach it. So what does this new military phase mean for Israel, the Palestinians and for Hamas fighters? We'll explore those issues with our guests in a moment. But first, this report by Katia Lopez-Horayan. It's a new stage in the war on Gaza. Some Israeli soldiers are being withdrawn from the Strip, and some analysts see it as an attempt to shift the military's focus to more targeted attacks against Hamas. A way to redirect attention to Lebanon, where Hezbollah fighters have been exchanging fire with Israeli forces to show solidarity with Palestinians. We continue intensive strikes to hit Hezbollah's deployment close to the northern border. It no longer looks as it did on October 6th, nor will it. The move comes amid widening political divisions in Israel's coalition government over how to manage the war and how to end it. Under pressure from his ultra-right coalition partners, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu canceled a war cabinet meeting last week where post-war arrangements were due to be discussed. Despite Israel's removal of some battalions from the Strip, 
He says strikes on Gaza will continue. We've had great success in the war and also some painful cases. Achieving victory will require time. As the Israeli army chief says, the war will continue for many more months. Netanyahu is facing criticism on several fronts. Israel's biggest ally, Washington, is pushing Israel to scale back its indiscriminate attacks on Gaza. At home, protesters are still calling on Netanyahu to secure the release of Israeli hostages. Analysts and others say Netanyahu's credibility is at risk and political pressures are likely driving his decisions. I'm afraid that the government of Israel has prioritized other, uh, uh, otherwise its, uh, its political uh, uh, ambitions and the hostages is not on the top priority. In order to release these hostages, a ceasefire must be taking place. There is no other way. In what could signal another significant shift, the U.S. Defense Secretary has announced the withdrawal of aircraft carrier Gerald Ford from Israel's shores. The threat of spillover conflict, he says, has declined. The war on Gaza is Israel's longest war. In nearly three months, more than 20,000 Palestinians have been killed and more than 2 million displaced. And now, as Israel looks to a new phase, many are questioning what is being achieved, both in the short and long term. Katia Lopez-Odoyan, Al Jazeera, for Inside Story. Let's bring in our guests. In London is Andreas Krieg, Associate Professor of Security Studies at King's College London and an expert on security and strategy in the Middle East. In Haifa is Diana Butu, Palestinian lawyer and former legal advisor to the Palestine Liberation Organization. And also in London is Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations and Associate Fellow of the MENA program, program Chatham House. A very warm welcome to all of you. Mr. Craig, I'll begin with you in London. There has been a lot of talk for weeks now about a new phase of the war, most notably with the U.S. urging Israel to conduct its operations differently. What do you think this new phase will look like? Yes, I mean, the Israelis have been under a lot of pressure over the last couple of weeks by the Americans in particular to kind of tone down the intensity of war fighting. And for the last two, three weeks, we were talking about the next phase coming soon. And I think we're entering that new phase now. Um, the Americans really wanted to see an end of fighting and kind of hoping that there would be a more permanent ceasefire in the making. Unfortunately, the Israelis are saying they haven't achieved any of their objectives yet, particularly when it comes to freeing hostages and, and also killing uh, the most senior members of Hamas. So the next stage is probably going to be a more low-intensity uh, counterinsurgency phase, where we see operations being conducted by kind of spearheaded uh, sort of special forces and, uh, and other pioneering forces who, are, who will remain within the Gaza Strip in what we see on satellite images to appear to be uh, fortified forward operating bases and from, um, from which they could now operate deeper into the territory. But we'll see some of the uh, kind of rear end of IDF forces who were there not to seize territory but to hold territory to kind of be uh, uh, kind of in, in incrementally being removed from the Gaza Strip. Uh, and then we'll see also more targeted operations to kind of respond to emerge 
leveraging targets when they come with probably close air support from the air and, and then allowing probably, hopefully, Palestinians to return to whatever is left of their houses, and which is obviously not a lot, and allowing for more humanitarian aid to come in. But the Israelis are building this at the moment. They really haven't laid it out yet. We're seeing, we might have a uh, press conference later today where this mm -hmm. will be outlined in more depth. All right, Ms. Butu in Haifa, do you think that the next phase, how hopeful are you that a next phase of Israel's operation could be, if not the beginning of the end of this war, certainly a move to what Mr. Krieg describes as uh, lower intensity? Look, I, I disagree. I think from the beginning, Israel has made clear what it wants to do with the Gaza Strip. This is not at all about returning Israelis. It's all about ethnically cleansing the Gaza Strip and perpetrating a genocide. They've made it clear from day one when they said that they wanted to see a smaller Gaza and a thinned out population. Can you imagine if we, if you'd heard people around the world talking about thinning out the Jewish population and, and for nearly 90 days seeing bomb after bomb after bomb, you'd see global outrage. But what they do instead is they're couching this in terms of some sort of military phases when we know that that's not at all the case. If they wanted the Israelis returned, they could have returned them within the first few days when the offer was on the table. But instead, Israel's taking the opportunity to ethnically cleanse the Gaza Strip and to perpetrate a genocide. And I don't think that we should be shy about saying what it is that Israel's doing. And I also disagree with the fact that these claims that somehow the United States is asking Israel to ease up. They've had opportunity after opportunity to actually vote in favor of resolutions, U.S. Security Council resolutions, demanding that Israel stop. And instead, they've either vetoed or they've abstained. And so they're not doing anything to put any pressure whatsoever on Israel. This could all be ended if the United States picked up the phone and said to Israel, enough is enough, or if the world said to Israel, enough is enough. But all that I see is that this, there's a genocide being perpetrated and people are talking about phases of, of a military operation. It's, it's quite silly. Mr. Meckelberg, what do you think of what you've heard so far and how genuine Israel is or even the U.S. is when they talk about uh, doing more to protect civilian casualties going forward, more targeted operations against the leadership of Hamas rather than the wide-scale bombing that we've seen so far? Yeah, I think it's difficult to really decipher what's, what's the intention here because we hear so many contradictory messages from Israel, from the United States, from the international community. So if you believe for the far right in Israel says, so probably it's talking about reducing the, the, the population of, of, of Gaza is completely unacceptable against international uh, law. People like Vitaly uh, Smotrich talking about the only way for security is if the only 100,000 to 200,000 uh, people uh, live, uh, Palestinians in Gaza. I don't think this is the, 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 the direction uh, forward. I think there is the re rhetoric that uh, some of the far right try to push resettling Gaza and, and reducing the population. At the end of the day, the, the, the people of Gaza, the Palestinians, they are not going anywhere. And I don't think there is going to be a situation they are pushed uh, elsewhere. I think what we are going into, to what Anya said earlier, into a low intensity, intensity war, obviously, Many of us called for a ceasefire a long, long, long time ago mm -hmm. because the level of, 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 of killing through bombardment by Israeli bombardment is completely 
uh, un, un, unacceptable. So we need to move through into, into a ceasefire. What Israel claims is the, the move to phase three of, of, of this war. As, as a result of the, the discharge, many of the reservists, let's, uh, let's remind our listeners or the viewers that you know, there is an impact when you, an, an army is based on reservists. It means there is also economic impact to this. And one of the reasons, Mr. Meckelberg, one of the reasons that uh, Israeli officials have said that they are pulling so many troops out of Gaza is to return the reservists to civilian life, to shore up the, you know, war-battered economy. Is, Ms. Boutou, let me come to you here. Just how much of a consideration would you say the Israeli economy is to the war cabinet and its decision-making? Look, I think that what Netanyahu really cares about is Netanyahu, and he wants to stay in power. And unfortunately, the longer this war continues, the longer it is that he is able to stay in power. And this is exactly what the calculation is. At the same time, the Israelis are quite worried about the body bags that are coming back uh, into Israel from the Gaza Strip. This is quite a high number for the Israelis, and I don't think that they expected this level of resistance back. Plus, of course, there is a battered economy. But I think first and foremost, this is all about Netanyahu wanting to stay in power and doing everything possible to prolong this war, which is why I, I very much disagree that this isn't about ethnic cleansing. It is. He's made it clear. He's now pushing other countries to take in uh, people to take in people from Gaza. They, he's destroyed the infrastructure completely. He's destroyed the largest Palestinian city. Um, which is Gaza City, and it's all because he doesn't want Palestinians to be able to return back to the Gaza Strip, and he wants to stay in power. Mr. Meckelberg, the latest poll by the Israel Democracy Institute shows that only 15% of Israelis want Netanyahu to remain prime minister. Do you agree with Ms. Bhutto? Do you think that he has a personal interest in not discussing the future? We heard that a war cabinet meeting was cancelled last week uh, amid reports that Netanyahu doesn't want to discuss what happens after the war. Well, I, in this, I, I completely agree with that. I think, unfortunately, Israel has been hijacked, taken hostage by, by Netanyahu's personal interest because of his corruption at trial. He needs to stay to stay in power to also potentially not go to jail and not to net to his corruption trial never uh, coming to its its natural conclusion. So in this sense, we I think this is this is the case, and he has interest even in, in prolonging the war as long as as he assumes that there is a correlation for between prolonging the war and him staying in, in power. But mm-hmm. yes, his, his, his level of, of support within the Israeli society is very low. What Israel needs is actually fresh election. But this, even this is not going to ensure the, the, the end of the war mm-hmm. and whether there is an Israeli plan for the future of Gaza. The one thing, whatever the plans of the far right, I think the international community won't allow to push 2.3 million Palestinians out of Gaza if, and if the United yeah. States is serious about it, it's, it's about what it's about, two-state solution and a ceasefire, it needs to act and act quickly. And yet the international community has allowed more than nearly 22,000 uh, 22, Palestinian people to have been killed, uh, two-thirds of them women and children. Mr. Craig, let me bring you in to talk about what has been achieved in this nearly three months of unprecedented attacks on the Gaza Strip before, you know, any new phase. 
Israel has always stated that its objectives are destroying Hamas and bringing back the captives. How do you think it's achieved any part of those objectives? No, not really. And I think from the, from the onset when these, these objectives were stated, it became clear for most analysts, military analysts and strategic analysts in particular, to say this strategy is not achievable, it's not sustainable. And the worst part of it is all this slaughter, all that killing, all that destruction that we've seen across the Gaza Strip has come very much in vain because what has been achieved is very little. And what the Israelis are now realizing, and they should have realized, they should have known, intelligence should have known, after the 7th of October, is that there is a city beneath the city. So they have leveled and flattened the entire part of the urban area overground of Gaza City, but now haven't really moved forward in, into the underground world. And they're now saying there are hospitals, there are tunnels, there are, you know, we knew that there was a city beneath the city. And that fight, which was always going to be the more difficult one, is the one that you can't target from the air, is the one where you need to send infantry in. This tunnel system is still intact, largely intact. The fact that they haven't really decapitated Hamas, which is what they wanted to achieve. They haven't found the leaders that they were looking for also suggests that they haven't made much progress on that front. We still see on the New Year's, uh, New Year's Eve, we saw rockets being fired into, into central Israel from the Gaza Strip, despite the fact that most of the territory has actually been occupied now by the IDF. Um, they haven't released the hostages. Again, that is the only way you can release the hostages through negotiation. Uh, Hamas has put a lot of different proposals on the table that uh, Bibi Netanyahu has refused to accept. Um, and Hamas remains operational. And my point being, and it remains the same over the last two months, is if you want to fight an idea like Hamas, if you want to fight resistance, if mm -hmm. this is what you're trying to demobilize, then what you need to do is you need to offer a social and a political alternative. Israel has offered absolutely nothing, nothing yeah. in terms of a strategy, nothing in terms of an end, nothing to an alternative to the Palestinian people that they can embrace. And Ms. Krieg, when Andreas, uh, Ms. Buter rather, when Andreas Krieg speaks about the absolutely limited achievements of the Israeli military against Hamas, against its expansive tunnel network militarily. What kind of impact has this war had on Hamas as a political movement? I think that it's, it's uh, I think we should be step back and really question this idea that a city can be a target. A city can't be a target. And, and what we're hearing, what I heard, is that, you know, it's okay in many ways to, to simply wipe out cities because they haven't yet achieved their targets. I know that's not exactly what he was saying, but if you read between the lines, this is what many of the analysts have been saying. And I think that it's very important that we step back from that and really question this idea that Israel gets to achieve carte blanche, uh, that it can do whatever it wants and, and carry out whatever it wants to carry out because there's something called Hamas. That said, if you ask me about where Hamas is standing, um, there, I can tell you that people are very much supportive of, the, of anybody who's going to stand in the, in the way between them and their annihilation. And right now, it's Israel that's doing the annihilating, and it's Hamas that is trying to protect Palestinians from being wiped off the map. And so you have seen a rise in support for Hamas because we haven't seen that anybody um, uh, around the world is coming to the defense of Palestinians or trying to protect Palestinians. Palestinians. Quite to the contrary, people are talking about how it's okay to target schools, how it's okay to target hospitals, how it's okay to target a tunnel infrastructure, when that's not at all uh, well, we have legitimate. Seen, Ms. Buto, we've seen, at the, certainly at the United Nations, within the General Assembly, within the Security Council, the majority of people want to protect Palestinian civilians and are saying that Israel's operation is not okay. It's the U.S. that has been blocking resolutions calling for a ceasefire. 
Correct, but they, we also have not seen a mass mobilization of international countries, particularly from the West, who've actually put into place measures to stop Israel. All that we've seen is one leader after another come forward and give Israel the greenest of green lights. And that is why the United States feels so emboldened to continue to do so. This is, this is an issue of genocide, and it's up to the world to stop genocide. This is what the international legal system was developed for, was to precisely stop genocide. And right now, the only country that I've seen step forward and try to push for an mm -hmm. end to this is South Africa through their yeah. filing of the case before the International Court of Justice. And Israel has said that it will respond to that case, that it is going to um, contest this case brought by South Africa. As a lawyer, how do you assess the case of genocide against Israel? And do you think that cases such as this impact what it does on the battlefield, even allegations? Yes. So in terms of whether a claim can be made, yes, very easily. Look, there's two components to genocide. One is the actions, which we've seen being carried out, and I've already described those, and, and my co-panelists co have also described them. But there's also the intent, and the intent is usually the most difficult part to achieve. And yet here we've seen that Israeli leader after Israeli leader, whether that includes the Minister of Defense, the President himself, or the Prime Minister, have made statements that are genocidal. And it's the genocidal statements coupled with the actions that we've seen on the ground that can easily make the case of genocide. And this is where the international legal system has been brought into place. The whole system was designed as a system to prevent the, the grossest of gross um, uh, atrocities. And genocide is the most gross of the atrocities that can be perpetrated. This is why I say that it's up to the world community to put into place action mm -hmm. to stop Israel. Will it affect people on the ground? I certainly hope so. And if it doesn't, this is why we also see that people are putting forward claims against the individual uh, officers themselves, the individual people who've made these orders themselves, so that they too can be brought before the International right. Criminal Court. Mr. Meckelberg, you've heard what Andreas Krieg, what Diana Butu have said, that the nearly three months of Israel's attacks on Gaza, they haven't uh, deterred Hamas militarily, they haven't... Um, defeated them politically. What are the conversations that the Israeli war cabinet is having at the moment about what they're going to do next? Is the Israeli war cabinet united in their approach? Well, I think there's a difference in cabinet, no doubt about it. I think the important point here, while Israel has the right to retaliate after what happened in, in October 7, this is not the right way to respond to this. And, and the killing of, of more than 20,000 uh, people in, in, in Gaza, most of them civilians, the destruction, the devastation caused in Gaza. And I think once and for all, there has been recognition. There is no military solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Welcome back. And that was a discussion on uh, the purported uh, new phase of uh, the siege upon in West Asia. And that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Tuesday, uh, January 2nd, uh, 2024. We've been broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to this edition of the Pan-African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast for Tuesday, January 2nd, 2024. Go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com 
forward slash Pan African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with uh, the music of John Coltrane and Eric Doffey from a live concert uh, in Helsinki, Finland in 1961. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.